You're listening to WCAT Radio, your home for authentic Catholic programming. Greetings, listeners and participants. We thank you for being with us. And today, I, Dr. Rhonda Churvin, would like to introduce two wonderful writers and speakers, um, Dr. Stephen Schwartz and Kiki Latimer. And they have cooperated in writing a wonderful book, Philosophy Begins in Wonder, published by Anru Books. And this book has a wonderful background history to it, to it. So Dr. Schwartz has been teaching philosophy in non-Catholic university for many, many, many years. How many? 50, 60 years? 40, 44. 44. 44 years, and Kiki Latimer has been his assistant, and also in her own right, she's a speech teacher and a homiletics teacher. But the wonderful thing is that when she became the TA at the University of Dr. Schwartz, she was able, when they were teaching, in helping him teach, and then eventually in writing this terrific book together called Understanding Abortion, she was able to bring into the classroom um, the point of view, even more than he would know, the point of view of the student, see, or the point of view in understanding abortion, the point of view of the woman who thinks it's okay to have an abortion, and to bring this forward in such a way that the wonderful insights of Dr. Schwartz would become available. And after you get his book, Philosophy Begins in Wonder for yourself or possibly to give to other people, you will see that Dr. Schwartz has the most wonderful teaching style where he totally reaches into the mind of the student, see, the mind of the student and what kind of doubts the student has about truths of all kinds. So, okay. Uh, So I met Stephen Schwartz some 60 years ago, and he was a big help in bringing me to into the Catholic Church out of a background of studying philosophy with the type of teachers who didn't believe in truth, who didn't believe in goodness, who didn't believe in ethics, who didn't believe in God. And he was a big help in bringing me forward with that. Okay, so... I'm thinking that the book itself could be a wonderful thing for Catholics to give to people you know who are somewhat philosophical, that is, they like to think, and they've been taking classes for years in universities where they don't come to the truth, they come to all sorts of errors. And by reading his book, uh, co-authored with Kiki Latava, they could come closer to the truth. So tell us, Dr. Schwartz, um, you know, why you wrote the book. In, in all my studies at uh, Fordham University with my father, Baldwin Schwartz, and Dietrich von Hildebrand, I often heard the phrase from Plato, philosophy begins in wonder. But usually it wasn't followed by any elaboration of how that actually works out. It was mentioned uh, and as a kind of almost as a kind of an aside, or in order to bring the uh, reader back to following the truth. 
on, <clears throat> on whatever theme was um, the topic of the current lecture, but not the idea of philosophy as wonder. And so it occurred to me that here was a task that needed to be fulfilled, namely to show precisely uh, how philosophy begins in wonder. I was deeply convinced that it was absolutely true and, and a very deep truth, a very important truth, um, one that contained a, a significant insight. But uh, as with other things in Plato, uh, he throws out these pearls, but then he moves on to something else. He doesn't elaborate them fully. So I thought that it was would be significant to write a book that showed in detail and specifically how philosophy begins in wonder. And that's what the book is. It's essentially um, a way of showing specifically how philosophy begins in wonder. Okay. Okay. Uh, so a word from you, um, Kiki Latimer. Um, did you think that philosophy began in wonder when you first started studying with Dr. Schwartz? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Steve had a, a wonderful way of making you think about things in a new way, looking at them, um, taking things that you kind of took for granted, often very common sense sort of ideas, and digging into them so that you saw, you saw it from a different point of view, um, a view where you didn't take, to take it for granted. Um, you looked at it as something new, sort of the way a child looks at something. You know, we, we walk through a field of dandelions and we, we, as an adult, we don't think too much of them, but the little child sees the dandelion and goes right for it, um, knows that you can blow on it, you know, and sees the wonder of the dandelion that as by the time you're, you know, in your 20s, you've kind of forgotten to look at something in a special way. So philosophy gives you that opportunity to look at things more deeply, to look at them differently. Um, and if, you know, you've become jaded at all about a particular topic, it takes that away and lets you return to a more, not childish view, but a very childlike view. So it all opens right. your heart. Yes, yes. Now, men, most of your students, Dr. Schwartz, did most of your students come into your classes being kind of skeptical and relativistic? Uh, it's hard to say. I I think many of them did, but I think uh, for the most part, or many others, were open-minded and uh, ready to receive the truth. And I think that um, once you pursue philosophy, as I tried to do in my classes, uh, that illusion of, of relativism uh, seems to go away. I think it's because people do, don't realize how philosophy proceeds, that they get sucked into that era of our age that, that, that all things are relative. Um, when you confront your experience, it becomes immediately apparent that child abuse is wrong. It's objectively wrong. It's really wrong. And it's not relative. It's not according to individual tastes. It's not according to culture. And so when you, when you allow people to come to, um, to grips with their experience, to confront their, the, the data of their immediate experience, they will see that, that things are not relative, but that they have an objective status. Right. Give an example of awakening someone to the wonder of something through philosophy. 
Okay, the coming into being of a new person, uh, two tiny biological specks, uh, which are not all that significant all by themselves and actually die if nothing further happens. But when they come together, that's the beginning of a new person, such as you and I, a being who after a while becomes aware of himself or herself, becomes self-conscious and aware of the world around them, the world of moral good and evil and all kinds of things, and then is able to pursue uh, various areas of inquiry like philosophy or the natural sciences, physics and, and, and mathematics and, and all kinds of other things, inventions and becoming uh, head of state, so many things. All of these things come out of uh, a tiny little speck, uh, an ovum that is fertilized by a tiny little, even smaller thing. And out of that comes a human being when things go normally. And that is just such a, an incredible, uh, an incredible development that from something that seems so humble and small, something so marvelous comes. And you can take um, some of the great, uh, great figures of history like Plato and Johann Sebastian Bach, and for many people, Einstein is a prime figure. For me, Bach would be the prime example um, that, that such a person also came out of this very, very humble beginning. Now, someone like Bach is very rare, but he too came from that small beginning. And that adds an even further dimension to the wonder of the coming into being of a new person that that Bach also began as a tiny little zygote and an embryo and a little baby in his mother's womb, and then grew up to be the giant of music that he became. And, and he has touched probably more people, uh, maybe not more than anyone else, but among those, among the most, touched the most people. I know he has touched me in, in ways that, that I can't begin to describe. And, and all of that from such a small beginning. So that's a a source of wonder that from such a small beginning and seemingly uh, simple beginning, something so great as any human being to begin with can come. And then in a few cases, someone of the stature of Bach, or you can put in Mozart or Beethoven or, or many, many other people. For me, music has a special meaning, so I use examples from music. So I think throughout the book, you show us how the way people who are not filled with wonder think of something is a contradiction in a certain way to so many deeper elements of human experience. So a way I used to put it when I first was coming toward the church, I had been brought up as a total materialist. We never talked about God, the soul, truth, goodness, anything. Uh, so like that. But then when I started studying um, Catholic philosophy and realized the tremendous meaning of human person, personhood and the wonderfulness of it. So I happened to have a boyfriend who was an ex-Catholic atheist. And so I was trying to wake him up to these deeper ideas. So I said, well, you mean when you say you love me, you mean you just love a hunk of meat? Is that what you mean? say I love you and he couldn't really answer that see because obviously when you're in love you're sensing this 
you know, unique preciousness of the other person, you know, but still the same person will go around. And if someone asks what's a human being, they'll say, oh, a human being is just a hunk of cells that's more intricately put together than than um, an animal, say, something like that. Hmm. Yeah, it's hard once you look at the reality of love to deny that there's certainly something more than the material world there um, because you can't, you can't see love. You can't touch it. You can only know it and experience it as, a, as an insight or as an internal experience. Um, but it's certainly not a brain process. Um, so it does lead you. I think love is one of the greatest things that leads you towards the spiritual realm. Yes. Okay. Did you, Kiki, did you always believe in the soul and God before you studied philosophy? Yes, I did. You, you did, but you got I wasn't much. brought up Catholic. I'm, you know, I can, I'm a convert to Catholicism, um, so I wasn't brought up Catholic. But, um, yeah, I always had some sense of a strong sense that God was real. Um, I don't know if as a child I used the word soul, but I certainly believed that there was certainly more to me than just my body. Um, yeah. So it certainly got more clarified. Yeah, I think that's a very good word is the word clarification. So looking at the different sections of the book, the human person, personal identity, music, Memory, language, time, causality, freedom, truth, um, love, forgiveness, gratitude, all these kind of things. These topics are things that everyone experiences, but they don't think through the way Dr. Schwartz helps them, you to the reader to do. They don't think it through to see that if they really experience the beauty of these things, that it has to have some source other than just matter and chance and that kind of thing. I'd like to turn to a particular thing because it's so important is um, it's so important for these times when so many students, if they even if they had faith when they were in their homes, they go to school and then they typically become atheists. So could you talk a little bit, uh, Dr. Schwartz, about um, seeking God and so forth as in this manner that you have in the book? Okay. Um, <clears throat> I think the existence of God should become clear and evident when we ask that very simple question, why is there something and not nothing? Why, why is there a world? And that, that calls for an explanation, that calls for a cause, that the world couldn't just pop into existence out of nothing. And even if you claim that the world always existed, which I think is a very hard thing to, to put your finger on and a very hard thing to really believe all the way through, even then you have to ask why it exists rather than not exist. And so I think when you ask that question, why is there something and not nothing? And then you can add further questions. Why are there human persons? And then why is there beauty? Why is there the beauty of Johann Sebastian Bach and Mozart and Beethoven and beauty and nature and art uh, that calls for something higher? And in the end, I think any honest reflection will make it plain or make it obvious and make it certain that only God 
can be an adequate explanation for the wonder of existence. And so we are led to the existence of God through his creation. And um, that is really the, the basic the basic motion, the basic motion from God's creation, we are led to God as the author of this wonderful world. But we also discuss in the book, if you know that we, the understanding that you can't command belief. So we have all these pointers to God, but that doesn't mean that we can command belief. So Steve discusses Pascal's wager. Okay. Okay. Explain that to people. Most, many of the people who are listening may not even ever have heard of Pascal. So, to, so describe. Pretend you were in a classroom right now, or that summarize what you say in the book in ten minutes or fifteen minutes to try to get across this basic idea. Yeah, I can do it in less than that. Pascal's wager comes into play when people have doubts. Uh, it is uh, not necessary for people who are firm in their belief. We're absolutely convinced that God exists. Um, I remember I had a friend asking him, what are you more certain that there's an external world and that you're not, you know, all by yourself or a solipsist? Are you more certain of the external world or of God? And he hesitated because he was equally certain of God and the external world. Now, many people are not in that position. Uh, they find the existence of the external world more evident and they're more comfortable in asserting that than of God. They, they're not as sure about God as they are in the external world. And in some cases, they are led to doubt God because of evil in the world. And so I address those cases where people are not sure. Is there a God or no God? And by God, I mean basically the Judeo-Christian God. I don't mean a deistic God who got the world going and then disappeared and no longer involved in the world. I mean, a God uh, who created the world and somehow stays with the world, somehow in some mysterious way uh, that we don't really understand, rules the world, not the way a human ruler rules his kingdom, but in in some other deeper way. So that if you then uh, believe in God, but have doubts, perhaps because of evil, then um, I'll have to back up a moment. The existence of God is of tremendous importance because if God does exist, then when I die, I will appear before God and I will have to do an account of my life. And so Pascal addresses those who are not sure whether God exists, who, as he puts it, seeing too much to deny God, but not enough to be, to be sure of God. And perhaps in the second part, and not not sure enough to believe that God exists. They see the evil in the world and wonder how that is compatible with an all-powerful and all-good God. And so they wonder, does God exist or not exist? And then he asks a simple question, which way of going wrong is worse? And if God doesn't exist and I believe that God exists, well, then I'm mistaken and it's too bad. I held a false belief, but beyond that, there's not too much damage that's done. And I will die believing in God, and then most likely there's no life after death. And I'll probably never find out that I was mistaken. I did the best I could. I believed God, or if I wasn't sure, I practiced the seeking of God. And then my life ended, and everything ended with that. On the other hand, in the other direction, it's much, much worse person who takes the position of atheism and and proudly declares, or confident, maybe not proudly, but confidently declares there is no God 
and I'm going to lead my life uh, on the premise that there's no God, and I'm even going to try to uh, free these believers of their illusion, uh, that you're wasting your time if you're going to church and all that stuff. That person dies, and then God does exist, and he appears, or he or she appears before God, and God asks that person, why did you deny me? And what are you going to say at that time? And I, I made that, that supposition very, very real. Uh, I don't want to be in the position of appearing before God and having to answer to him, why did you deny me? Why did you not take me seriously? And perhaps even worse, why did you tell other people that I didn't exist? You know, now you have to give an account of that. And I don't know how I would ever give an account of that. I don't know how you would ever do that. So that's a very, very, very uncomfortable. That's a Tumali term. Horrifying position is a better term. Horrifying position to be in, to be. And so I'd rather be in the other position. If, if I'm going to be wrong, I'd rather be in the position of having led a life of seeking God. I did my best to try to find God, and God didn't exist after all. It's somewhat paralleled by a person who seeks justice in the world, seeks to bring about justice in the world, and basically fails. Well, at least he tried. At least he tried. It's better than not even trying. So the worst thing is to not try and to ignore that all-important question. And then the atheist was right after all, and God does exist, and you then has to appear before God and give an accounting, and there's really no accounting to be given. And I'm not saying that that person's going to go to hell. I think that's just a very presumptive thing. Uh, God will judge each person uh, hopefully in, in mercy, but perhaps also in justice. I don't want to be in the position of having to answer to God, why did you deny me? How God will judge another person, I don't know. That's not my, that's not my responsibility. That's not my job. I am responsible for my own standing and my own being before God. And there I will, following Pascal, who, who says this very beautifully, I will do my utmost. He has very beautiful words. My heart inclines wholly to know where is the truth about God. My heart inclines wholly to know and serve God. Nothing is more important than that. I'm paraphrasing him. He doesn't say it exactly that way. So I think I can say Pascal is my favorite philosopher, maybe along with a few others, but one of my favorite philosophers is Pascal, partly because he experienced that moment of doubt where he wasn't sure about God and where the faith didn't come as easily to him as it does to some other people. And then in that moment, he said, but then I have to seek God. And he has very strong words. The doubter who does not seek is altogether wrong and miserable. And I wouldn't put it quite so strongly, but he, he puts it that way. He's more daring than I am. And so, I, but I think he's basically on target that if you don't see God and God does exist, you're in a bad position. And the other way, you seek God, you do your utmost to try to find God, and then wasn't a God after all. But somehow I find that totally counterintuitive because, you know, where did the world come from? The world had to have some kind of cause. And there has to be a being who is like us personal, because otherwise it wouldn't account for the existence of persons. And so that brings you right to God. Well, I just, I, I'm just thinking, uh, uh, Dr. Schwartz, thinking of a very commonplace analogy for this is suppose it was your birthday and 
all these gorgeous presents came to your door, including a new car, um, beautiful, a beautiful painting, all these things. And you just shrugged your shoulders and said, well, it must have all just arrived at my door by chance. I mean, anyone would think I ought to spend some time trying to find out who gave me these one. It's a very good things, analogy. Right? Mm. right? Yeah, I'm yeah. relying on when you when you were teen, I mean, many of the things in Book for Logins in Wonder are in other books you wrote and class notes and things like that. So um, did many students, did you find many students became strengthened in conviction that God was real from these arguments that you give in the book? I don't know how to answer that. Can you answer that? I, I think certainly the, the importance of the issue was more, was clarified. Um, that there were enough pointers in the world between the material world of beauty, um, the truth of things that we find in mathematics um, and in love relationships, virtue ethics of gratitude, the power of the soul to forgive, um, that these were, there were enough pointers um, to the possibility of God. Um, that I think students certainly left with the understanding that the proper thing to do if they didn't believe in God was to at least seek, seek out um, this idea of God and the possibility of its being true. So I think that definitely did happen. Where that seed led people, we usually didn't find out necessarily. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, now, um, some of them would say, well, scientists think that the world just came about by chance. But there are, I read many things by scientists that show that the reality of the material world points to a creator God. And you deal with that a little bit in connection with the Big Bang Theory uh, how would you put that? How would you put what is your sense? Do you think nowadays more scientists have come to see the reality of the universe that they study as pointing to God? Yes, I would say so. And, and there are two things to be said here. One, uh, quite apart from probability of regarding the way the world is, that there is a world at all points to God. So even before you get into the uh, the order in the world, the, the very fact that there is a world at all. Why is there something and not nothing? Uh, so that already, I think, points unmistakably to God. And then the other part, <clears throat> where the more you delve into the wonders of nature, the more you realize that it cannot be a matter of chance as the anthropic principle, which um, says, in effect, that the probability of life Arising by chance is so infinitesimally small. I don't know the exact figure, but but way beyond anything that's realistically possible. Um, that that also points to God, the, the existence of life, and especially I'd like to say not just life as we have it, also in, in plant life and animal life, but the life of persons, the life that you and I have as persons, self-conscious beings who can relate to other beings, but no other beings who can love, who can seek the truth, who understand beauty. I mean, just take that incredible phenomenon. Um, if you play beautiful music to a cow, 
they're not going to, the, the cow is not going to understand it. It's just beyond their experience. So the, the, the reality of a person as a being who can listen to the music of Bach and say, oh my God, how beautiful that is, and be touched by the beauty of music, that is one of many, many ways in which the reality of the person stands out, uh, uh, elevates, is elevated above the realm of the, of the non-personal. And that, I think, points to God as the ultimate person, that, that if we are persons, the sufficient reason for our existence has also to be a person, and a person uh, capable of creating persons. This is an astonishing thing when you think about it, and creating out of nothing, and with that we have God. Also, the idea of things coming about after a certain amount of time through chance, first of all, implies that the material world exists, so you have to say, well, where did it come back? But it also implies that chance exists. And well, well, I think there's that, nothing think than chance. <laughs> we use the word chance as a sort of noun, as if chance were a thing, like a power, whereas actually chance is just a description of things that are unexplained. It's not, a, a, an, it's never supposed to be an entity. I mean, if it becomes an okay. entity, then you would s- think of it differently. Chance is usually taken as the opposite of, of design or intention. So if, you, if, if something is lying, uh, if a package is lying on your doorstep, it's not there by chance. It was put there by somebody. Uh, whereas if you um, take seed and, and, and throw it on the ground, the fact that a particular seed lands just where it does and not somewhere else that's that's a matter of chance. Or the dice, they often uses an example of chance that you throw the dice and it comes up on a certain number. That's a matter of chance uh, as opposed to design. When you wrote the book, were you thinking this would be a book that uh, your students, since you're now a retired professor, but I imagine many of your students will see this book and realize that it compiles all the wisdom that they got from your classes is all together in this book, right? Well, that's, I don't know. That's a hard question to answer because I've taught so many courses over 44 years at the University of Rhode Island. Not all of it is in the book. I taught several different courses, introduction to philosophy and metaphysics and ethics and Mm -hmm. practical ethics and uh, a good, good part of it's in there, though. A good part of it is in there. Yeah. Now, as compared to other philosophy books, a thing that I think is wonderful about this book is that I think that any intelligent person could read this without having studied philosophy before, without having a big philosophical um, vocabulary, all that, because... You reason with the reader in the simplest possible way, such as you've just done in the last little talk that you've just given us here on WCAT Radio. Um, Let's be sure to mention how could someone get this book. You could get this book, Philosophy Begins in Wonder, by Stephen Schwartz and Kiki Latimer. You can get this book from Anru Books. 
the very book publishing company that sponsors this radio show. So if you look at the same web that has this TV show, um, you'll be able to find the book itself. Or if you just type it under search Schwartz, spelled S-C-H-W-A-R-Z, Schwartz philosophy begins in wonder, you'll find it right away and you'll be able to get hold of it. And uh, I think it's just a, a wonderful, wonderful book that it would be a great, great gift. Many, most people who are watching WCAT radio are yourselves strong believers in God and in beauty and truth and goodness. But for all those confused people in your families and friends who don't have that advantage, this would be a wonderful bridge for them, I think. What would you want to say? What more would you want to say before we close the show, uh, uh, Dr. Schwartz or Kiki? I think wonder. I think wonder is both a, a way of getting into philosophy and also a way of pursuing philosophy. And it's an antidote to the very false idea that some people have, which is that philosophy is somehow removed from life that it's esoteric in a, in a bad sense, uh, abstract, uh, and not, not relevant to life. And quite the opposite is the case that philosophy is, I would even dare to say, among all the disciplines, the one that is most close to our immediate experience. I mean, chemistry can be very, very significant, especially when it's applied to, to medical things that can save a life. And so I'm not in any way downplaying that, but in terms of our lived experience, our contact with reality, our contact with other people, our uh, engagement in, in, in the course of our life, I think their philosophy is, is the prime word and the prime uh, discipline that pursues these matters matters uh, that are of, of immediate concern to our existence, our own existence, other people, moral good and evil, the existence of truth. And, and, and one of the things I do is try to uh, <clears throat> equip people to combat the errors uh, of uh, today. One of them that I've often run across is people say, that, well, that's true for me, which uh, is very easy to point out that that's confusion that the most of that can mean is I believe this to be true. But if something is true, it's objectively true. It's objectively true that um, Canada is north of the United States, that water is H2O, and in historical truth, many, many examples can be given. Truth refers to what is really the case. Okay, I have a I have a cute little way of trying to prove this to people. I say Try it. You're speeding along the freeway and the cop comes and challenges you. Are you going to say, well, that's just your opinion after all, you know? <laughs> My opinion is that I wasn't driving um, dangerously. And it's, your, it's just your opinion. It's not an absolute truth that I was driving 75 in a 60-mile zone. <laughs> Try it out. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. But I want to point out here in connection with that, that the very meaning of opinion, if it's properly understood and properly used, is a claim to truth. So there's the expert opinion in a court of law, and they call that person in 
because they can get at a truth, which they otherwise might not get at. So an opinion to be meaningful is a claim to truth. And so the expert in the court of law gives his opinion that the bullet, for as an example, this bullet could not have been fired from this gun. And so now the court has this information, which it didn't have before. So they, uh, by getting his opinion, they have a truth which they don't have, which they didn't have before. So opinion are entirely dependent for their meaning on the existence of truth mm-hmm. as claims to truth. I think a great advantage of your book is it's long and thorough. And so as you're reading the book, you're reminded there's such a tendency in our society to despairing ideas that life is meaningless, worthless, why even live why just live? I remember one cynical person saying, why just live if life is one damn thing after the other? You know, people really feel that way about life. And if they were reading this book, the more they dwelt on their actual experiences of love, even if, even if their love relationships in some ways failed, but if they think about the people that they do love, and think about the nature of that love, or they think about beauty of the sky or the ocean or whatever it might be that they think is the most beautiful, that this will give people, just reading the book and increasing their own sense of wonder because of your descriptions, your beautiful descriptions of all these realities. This is gonna help people to have hope and to begin to look further. Maybe Kiki, would you like to say a final prayer for the program? Sure. <laughs> In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the many years that Steve was able to teach, the many students that he reached. Lord, you've helped us bring that classroom experience into the book for many more people. And so we pray that this endeavor does reach others. Um, in the spirit of wonder in which it was written. Amen. 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 So you might go to um, Enroute Books and Media, and you could look at the cover of the book, and you could see um, different different beautiful uh, people endorsing the book and what they said about the book. And um, I think you couldn't do anything better than actually get hold of this book. (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Schwartz. Thank you, Kiki Latimer. And um, may you live to to see these ideas exemplified in readers someday. I like to think because I'm 85 now, so I'm always thinking about eternity. And I like to think of you both being at the pearly gates and you see all these people come rushing. You see this huge crowd of people and you say, who are these people? And they're your students and your readers. And they say, thank you. (laughs) Amen. Amen. Thank you for that remark. Thank you for listening to a production of WCAT Radio. 
Please join us in our mission of evangelization. And don't forget, love lifts up where knowledge takes flight.